This is Classical Ideas with Greg Soden. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. Today I'm welcoming my friend Eric Lancaster, a return guest to this show. Eric has been a friend of mine for a long time. Back in 2013, I was his son's 10th grade English teacher. His son would talk about Eric's work on indigenous religions, his ridiculous grasp on many languages, In the projects he was always working on at home related to his teaching jobs at the local colleges like the University of Missouri and Columbia College. His son would talk about Eric speaking Italian, Gaelic, Japanese, and Spanish at home. And I always thought, who is this guy? Once Eric and I became friends, he was a regular visitor to my classroom in religious studies. He helped me teach lessons on comparing and contrasting translations of the Bhagavad Gita. He helped me do a hands-on simulation of a Zen monastery, including long periods of Zazen staring at the wall, and even hitting me with a keisaku in front of the entire class of high school seniors. The keisaku, or as I refer to it, the Zen whacking stick, helps relieve Uh, pressure built up in pressure points in meditating monks' backs and to remedy lapses in concentration. The students would always cringe and giggle when Eric would whack me with full force, sending a reverberating thwack throughout the room. Eric would also come in and give detailed talks about Japanese Shintoism, talk about the proper steps for touring a Shinto shrine, and talk to students about the famed kami of Shintoism. Eric and I spoke for Classical Ideas, this show, in August of 2017. And seeing as how we are now at the one-year anniversary of this show, I found it fitting to bring Eric back to discuss a topic that I haven't touched on yet, Shintoism. Shintoism is inherently tied to the nation of Japan. Just a quick side note, there are a few moments where the microphones echoed near the start of the discussion, but it does not remain a problem throughout the entire discussion, so please bear with me in those couple of moments. So, my guest today is Eric Lancaster. Eric Lancaster is an instructor of Japanese at the University of Missouri, and I'm happy to welcome him back on the show to discuss Shintoism. Welcome to Classical Ideas. I'm here today with my friend, Eric Lancaster, Classical Ideas alumnus. Eric, how are you? Hi, I'm doing well, thank you. Welcome back to Classical Ideas. It's good to be back, thank you for having me. What have you been doing with your life since you were on Classical Ideas way back in episode number three? Well, I think I've been mostly teaching, 
doing a lot of Japanese language classes at the University of Missouri, a Japanese cinema course at the moment that we're having a lot of fun with. Excellent. So, Eric, we're here today to talk about Shinto, and we're going to talk a lot about Japan. So maybe you can just start off by telling me a little bit about how you came to care so much about Japan. Well, I think that my father and his father, having both lived in Japan, kind of brought me up with an understanding that there was something out there that was different, that was very much a part of their lived experience. And so I think that growing up with this idea that there was something outside of my day-to-day lifestyle that was new and possibly um, invigorating uh, brought me up with kind of this idea of intrigue about the things that I didn't know anything about. As I grew up, I at least academically became very inclined towards indigenous religions. And so my study in indigenous religions tra- you know, caused me to travel across the United States and eventually to Japan, where I was able to kind of explore an indigenous religion, or at least what I thought was an indigenous religion, in a very different context, and one that was not on the, on the receiving end of colonialism. And in this, we're talking about Shintoism. That's what I thought at the time. I think that I've come to be corrected in a lot of my presuppositions, but initially, yes. So before we, I, I kind of want to dive into some of those complexities that you seem to be wrestling with right here. Um, sure. So what is Shinto? Because I think that this is something that a lot of Western listeners will not be familiar with at all. Well, when we talk about Shintoism today, we are typically talking about this um, collaboration of some 80,000 shrines in Japan that are all under the umbrella of the National Association of Shrines, which was formed in the 1940s, just after World War II. So what is Shintoism as far as a like religious practice? As a religious practice, it is something of a puzzle. With uh, polytheism, we see that there are lots of different ideas, and the idea that everyone has to be unified around a single train of thought isn't taken for granted. And so what is like the translation of the word Shinto? What does that actually mean? So etymologically speaking, Shintoism, the Shin in it means Kami or it means God. Um, we also think of Kami as being something that just inspires awe. All right. It could be a spiritual phenomena of some sort based in a location or um, some sort of action. And then the To is the same toe that you have in Taoism. All right, it's it's coming from the same word that means the way. So it's the way of the gods. Excellent. So whenever you say kami, it's K-A-M-I. Correct. Not the um, other kami usage. Not, not communism, right? We're not... <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, that's really funny. I just wanted to make sure that people know that they can, whenever they go and look up things furthermore after this episode, that they'll be able to, you know find out a little bit about K-A-M-I Kami, which are deities in Shintoism. Okay, so in your view, what is like the purpose or goal of Shintoism? Well, 
if you just look at Shintoism as the Japanese present it, and I think it's always important to remember to learn from people the way they kind of categorize themselves. Um, a big part of Shintoism is giving thanks for the kami, serving the kami, and praying to the kami. All of which, you know, requires you to understand something about the nature of kami. Okay, so what is, like, so whenever we're thinking about kami, we're talking about many different deities, right? Yes. Okay, so can we dive into some of the deities? Uh, what is, like, the purpose of a Shinto kami? The uh, purpose of the kami is interesting because it's not assumed necessarily that they were created to have a function, but rather they existed beforehand and they have brought about certain blessings and benefits to the people. And depending on whether you're involved with a local shrine or if you're involved with the larger community, that function will shift based off of your relationship to the kami. And so one could say anthropologically that the function of a kami might be to bring about lightning or good luck or rice. Um, because we know that that is what is prayed for when one addresses the kami. In practice, however, we see that we have two more or less separate categories of kami. We have the seven gods of good fortune, and then we have the imperial line established through Amaterasu. And with the imperial line, the function of the gods is really to uphold the emperor, that is, the responsibility of the gods is to take care of the emperor and in so doing, giving shape to Japan and in so doing, blessing the world. Because as Japan thrives, so does the rest of the world. So are these deities, the kami, are they local to specific villages? Are they national for the whole country? How does the sort of pantheon work? Well, both. Both. You have certain gods that have a larger influence, and so there will be perhaps two or three shrines dedicated to Amaterasu. But as an imperial god, people go on pilgrimages to visit this particular god, whereas Inari and Hachiman-sama, they both have shrines everywhere. And all of these represent the exact same gods by their specific names. Now, with these being some of the more prominent gods in Shintoism, we still have hill over their god and mountain god for this town and, you know, gods that are very specific to certain Loki. And so I think that with Shintoism, a lot of it has to do with where you are. So I know that in some religious traditions around the world, some of the gods are believed to have been people who were like once on earth is there any kind of connection like that with japanese kami were they ever believed to be like human at any time or have they always been a sort of more divine uh being this is a really important discussion that is still held in shintoism over the years they've tried to kind of negotiate because from one shrine to the next they've had very different ideas about what the gods are what they should be Certain gods were believed to have actually been um, anthropomorphic from the beginning. Amaterasu is frequently designated, you know, a humanoid, however, born from the eye of a, her father god. 
And I think that's interesting because coming from an eye, one does not expect a human simply to be brought down in a tear. Inari-sama, on the other hand, is a god associated with foxes. And the question of whether this god is actually a fox or a human has been kind of up to up for debate for years. And the National Association of Shrines has argued that in order to be taken seriously, one needs to regard all of the gods as anthropomorphic. Interesting. Okay, so do you have any favorite Shinto deities that you really enjoy reading about or um, studying or visiting their shrines? Like, Do you have any favorites that jump out? Well, I think we all do. At the end of the day, it's these are very well-known, very well-documented gods. And so we have a lot of stories. We have plays. We have art. We have architecture dedicated to the gods. And if you can enjoy art, you can get out there and really engage with the gods in a way that you enjoy. Um, A.B. Susama is, of course, a favorite of mine. Um, associated with fishing, originally with smallpox. He's the only of, he's the only one of the <laughs> seven uh, lucky gods that is known to originate in Japan. And so we actually read about Ebisusama in the Kochiki. And I think that that playfulness that comes with, you know, a lucky god in general, always smiling, always engaged in... Um, rituals that involve having a good time makes for very interesting uh well it's not what you expect in the west with your very somber notions of deity this is a very playful god and i think that's fun um not quite on the level of trickster like perhaps the thunder god is and there are several thunder gods you know but when we talk about thunder gods they tend to be a little bit more aggressive stealing the navels of small children and, you know, actually causing mischief. Whereas I think Abisu is more of a god of playfulness. Excellent. So you've mentioned a couple names, Abisu, Amaterasu. Is there any sort of presence where people can see Shinto deities reflected in, like, modern contemporary pop culture? Oh, everywhere. You never know when it's going to come up. I mean, Amaterasu has um, enjoyed prominence in video games for years now and it's the uh the capcom game okami is something my students constantly bring up and there it's this beautiful beautiful game and you play as a wolf that happens to be a god and it's a play off the words o meaning large and kami meaning god and the word okami which means wolf and so it's uh, a chance where the game designers were able to bring all of the elements of japanese mythology as recorded in the kojiki and put it into a single, you know, entertainment slash educational vessel. I know there's like some cartoons as right as yeah. well, right? You you seldom run across an anime anywhere that doesn't have a reference to something of the gods, whether it's using the name Raijin as the name of a strike, you know, a a jet that you know causes thunder to pour down upon the enemy, metaphorically, or if it's just simply seeing a bisu. Not in name, but the way he's drawn, the way he actually looks like Ebisu, and he takes care of horses, which is something we understand of Ebisu. And uh, the, I believe the anime was called Silver Spoon. So, if we think about Shintoism 
being present in modern Japanese society. And you think about a person who, you know, is involved in Shintoism in any way. What kinds of problems is Shintoism seeking to solve for like an ordinary Japanese person? I really think that Shintoism has had a lot of strength in its ability to help create the sense of community. It has been very powerful in structuring the idea of family and maybe not the rules and regulations of family, but the sense of community that comes from knowing that you belong and you don't have to earn it. You have a place and that place can lead to having certain blessings or benefits as you engage with not just the world around you as you know it, but you're trained to understand that you have a connection to the past through the gods and a connection to the future through your descendants. And so I think that really strengthening that sense of what it is to be Japanese has been very powerful in the maintenance of Shintoism. So you said what it means to be Japanese, and you've mentioned the word indigenous a couple times, where uh, Shintoism is indigenous to Japan, and it has a lot of uh, importance on what it means to be Japanese. So... Can you say a little bit about, about more about that? Because earlier you were mentioning some conflict with the word indigenous now. Um, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, and I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to do that too because this is very tricky water to navigate. The idea that it is indigenous and yet it's constructed as we understand it in the, you know, in the 1860s up to the 1920s at least um, creates a little bit of complexity. Shintoism has been studied along with native studies, and that's what we call the system of understanding uh, Japanese from antiquity. We know that many of the gods that are recognized in Shintoism have their origins in, in this Japan that predates Buddhism and that predates you know, interactions with Korea and China from a time you know, prior to the 300s. And it has been a difficult struggle since about the 8th century, Common Era, to really sort out what was indigenous to Japan and what was not. And a lot of foreign influences were considered, especially by the time we got to the 9th century, to be things that were causing pain and destruction in Japan. And so they've been trying to purify their indigenous beliefs since about that time probably earlier, but from the written records, we know that at least at that point of history, they've been trying to recreate, that is to reinvigorate an ancestral Japanese in a way that benefits the world. And so it's taken a lot of practice and trial and error. And so we've established what is Shintoism today, the way of the gods, um, but it's not necessarily exactly what was practiced you know, over a millennium ago. What might be a few of the major differences? Well, they, first of all, it is, the art is beautiful now, and it is magnificent, and a lot of their art training has developed in recent years. And so we're seeing architecture that's becoming a lot more elaborate. We're seeing a lot of money being invested in these shrines so that they can have more, um, amenities available to the public so it's also a lot more accessible to people who are older who have health issues um the 
basic uniformity is also a big change that has taken place because early on every single shrine they didn't have the wikipedia option of going out and saying hey so how how is it that they do it over at the other shrine how can i look more like them um so you just said shrine so let's talk about shrines a little bit what is a shrine in shintoism well a shrine is to be distinguished in japanese at least from a temple, which is an indoor location. A shrine is an outdoor location where one goes and it has been, you know, established as a position for the uh, practice of Shintoism. Okay, so if how many shrines are currently in Japan for Shintoism? Oh, you average about at least one a mile across the islands. So thousands. We're, we're thinking 80 to 100,000. Okay, great. Easy. So, um, how many of those were destroyed in World War II? Do you happen to know that off the top of your head? That just sprung to mind. No, I have no clue. Okay. So, say that somebody has gone to Japan as a tourist for the first time, and they have an interest in Shintoism, but they don't really know what to do. So, what I kind of want you to do now is uh, talk about how you would navigate a shrine. What would we see as we approach the entry to a shrine and then kind of like give us like a little guided tour of what you see in your mind as you go through a shrine and what you do along the way. All right. So you have many different types of shrines. And when you're traveling in Japan, sometimes you're going to want to see shrines. And the first thing you have to do is find them. Now, usually local maps will help you kind of just figure out more or less the area. But if you just lift your head up, and look around to your left and to your right, you will usually see a plantation of trees that are about three to four times taller than any other group of woods in the area. That is usually a good way to indicate where a shrine is. They keep their trees much taller in these areas, in these holy spaces. And so finding trees, you can simply walk on foot there. You usually don't have very far to go to find a shrine. Upon arrival, you're going to find a gate. This gate is iconic of all Shintoism. It's a, it's called a tori, and it's usually gray or red in color. It's on my shirt. Yeah, he's showing me a picture of his shirt. And uh, yeah, the uh, the first step, expect to do a lot of bowing. So you approach the gate, and you're going to bow, and then you're going to enter. And I think a big part of this process is really recognizing that ritual is central to Shinto practice. And so walking in, first part of the ritual is bowing, and then not walking in the very center of the tori. You want to stick to the right or to the left, allowing a sacred space for uh, kami to travel if they're traveling. Walking through, you'll usually go through a second shrine as well. And you're going to be passing lanterns or lamps that are built into the sides to help people who traveled at nighttime, especially in an older age when they had to use their own lanterns to make it so that people could pass through. Upon entering, the next thing you have to do is ritual bathing. And usually there's going to be a uh, fountain of some sort almost always with a reptilian figure based in the, in the uh, actual sculpturing of the stone of the fountain. So it's going to be a turtle, it's going to be a frog, and I know turtles 
aren't the same thing as frog, frogs or amphibians. But the point is, is they're um, something of a, a green hue usually. Uh, I think I said dragons as well are very common. And you'll go and you'll find a large spoon. Perhaps that's not the word. What do you call those? A ladle. A, long, a ladle, that's a better word. And so you'll pull a ladle up and you'll wash one hand off. Then you'll wash the other. And then you'll pour some water into your hand and you'll rinse off the front of your mouth, usually spitting out the residue. There's a, you know, a safe space to remove that material. And then you will finish by scooping up a little more water and letting it pour down the handle so that you can ritually clean that off for the next user. At this point, you're ready to enter. And the main function from here if you're not going for a specific holiday, and in which case you would have different directions to go depending on which holiday it was, according to the tradition of that particular shrine. But if it's not a holiday and you're going for your own benefit, you're going to find your way straight to the back, the far end from the entryway, and there's going to be the actual shrine. And this is going to be a small enclosure that will feature a box in the front, and usually something reminiscent of the god there enshrined. You're not going to see typically an image of a god, but rather material wealth that reflects something about the nature of the god. On either side of the shrine proper will be a koma inu. It's going to be a giant lion. Now the word inu means a dog, but the koma inu is depicted as a magical lion, one usually with its hand or its paw on top of a ball, representing authority, and the other with its paw upon a small pup, representing, you know, the procreative power. And getting past the, the guardians, you offer a coin, you <coughs> clap your hands, and then you bow. A specific prayer is not uttered. You don't have to know anything special about you know, the origins of the God that you're addressing. Just a moment of reverence. After which you bow one more time and you're done. You're Where doesn't the, uh, does the Kami, is the Kami supposed to like have a place to like live inside the shrine as well? That is correct. Um, for a lot of the Kami, they have places where they are permitted to dwell in, in an area that's considered isolated from the influences of the local people. So what is a normal day-to-day -day encounter with Shintoism like for Japanese people? It is everywhere. To study Shintoism really is to study the gods, but it's to study Japanese literature, Japanese poetry, Japanese language in general. And because of that, you're going to see a lot of everything that is Japanese embedded with the idea of Shintoism. That is architecture frequently betrays certain components of ancient Japanese-based myths. You're going to see it in your movies. You're going to see it in lawn ornaments from the tanuki in front of your door that is going to wish you good luck returning home to the feature of a rake, usually with the face of Ebi Susama, you know, put somewhere up in your house in a way that makes it very visible and kind of a reminder of the... Uh, of your ability to rake in good blessings and good fortune this year. 
you're going to see it evident when you are traveling. Your road signs are going to be colored with the images of ancient Japan. And also basic rituals. The amount of bowing people do to each other. The amount of the emphasis of politeness is a recognition of of respect. And when I say respect, I do mean honoring and worshiping that they have for each other. And that tradition of bowing is in uh, all, is in all, is in like, it's done instead of like handshaking and things like that, right? Yeah, traditionally. So something that I'm curious about is if you can talk about why the year 1868 matters for Shintoism in general. Because I know that we were talking about that earlier, and I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about the importance of that year. Absolutely. I think that a, a good way to approach this would be to say that as early as the 1700s, Confucianism had already started kind of this very strong movement to separate the religious practices amongst the Japanese, especially Buddhism. And Shintoism followed suit. And so the emergence of new ideas and challenging ideas and competition in general um, led to kind of this, to this period of developing ideas that were not always harmonious. Eventually, the powers that be, the emperor versus the, the shogun, they ended up in conflict. The emperor had laid dormant as this figurehead for the nation with no real political power, whereas the shogun would lead with their soldiers and force kind of this martial law on the lands. And with the conflicting ideas, the emergence of this idea of national pride really started to take prominence. And with that national pride, an understanding that anyone who tried to take away from it was in fact not being Japanese. And so the shogun started to become perceived as part of the Buddhist embodiment Mm. of a warrior civilization that was foreign to what it meant to be truly Japanese. And so at this time we see emerging technologies that are coming from around the world and the Japanese start engaging again with the West. At first, you know, uh, not very openly, but eventually they start wanting to be a part of this development of technology lest they be left behind in the world. And it is because of this that the idea of the closed country policy, which was associated with the shogun, which was associated with Buddhism, which is associated with not being authentically Japanese, or at least it was politically expedient to say it wasn't, came a new idea. They said, If we reinstate the emperor, put the power with him, open our borders and start being Japanese the way that's intended, then maybe we'll need a new religious perspective concerning Shintoism because it's time for it to take prominence. And so they very intentionally manufactured a form of Shintoism that developed some very well it was called the ministry of edification and it emphasized instead of what we talked about earlier with giving thanks to the kami um, serving the kami and praying to the kami instead it emphasized the gods morality and the emperor 
and putting to the front the idea of the emperor became kind of this political banner for Shintoism. And so in so doing, they created an environment that allowed for the the Japanese sense of self to really flourish. And it was no longer hindered by ideas that were coming from the West or from the East unless they wanted them to, because it was now a true Japanese identity that they thought they were forming. And maybe they were, and I don't mean to say that in a way that suggests that they didn't know what they were doing, but it's appropriate to say that their confidence was not necessarily one that people agree about today in Japan. And the current discourse about what Shintoism should be, especially now that emperor worship is no longer a part of the um, the general idea of Shintoism, I think. So you are a teacher of Japanese um, at a university, and you care deeply about Japan, Japanese culture, Japanese history, Japanese practices. What do what are some of your favorite things about Shintoism that keeps you interested in learning more about it? The thing about Shintoism is it is a study of all things authentically Japanese. Now I I have a great love and admiration for things from other parts of the world as well. Um, I, I've spent some time in China, and I'd like to spend some time in Korea. It's not that I could say that I love Japan to the exclusion of all other things, but Japan is so unique. And I think that for me, at least, it is a, it is a space where I can sit down and really engage with, um, with, an, with the people that have maintained their sense of self who have maintained a sense of, of identity that hasn't really been caught up as much in globalization at such an early age. And I think really that's what I'm trying to say is they've resisted globalization long enough so that we have a written history of it. And so we get to see what an indigenous belief system could look like transformed and sustained in a modern, you know, in a contemporary environment. And I know that you're involved in a troupe called Bunraku Bay, which is a Japanese puppetry troupe, right? That is mostly true. Okay, maybe you want to fix me a little bit. Well, again, when we're negotiating identities, there's always room for a little bit of difficulty. We were established and accepted by Japanese troops. That is, we were trained by a Japanese troop, which was called Imada, and another one called Kuroda, that trained us. And a series of different troops in Japan got together and voted on whether or not we would be permitted to take on the name of Bunraku and go out and continue to uh, do practices outside of Japan. And so we are the first established Japanese-style puppet theater outside of Japan. How does Shintoism inspire this type of puppetry? Oh, in so many ways. And Buddhism does too. It really uses a lot of both of them. We actually were trained at a shrine dedicated to Hachiman-sama. And so that image was there in the background at all times. Many of our plays and performances engage with the uh, the old lore and the old stories. Um, but I think more than all of that, it is a uniquely Japanese style of theater. You do not have 
puppets that emerged in isolation like the ones that we use, and you do not have stories that emerged like the ones that we use in any other part of the world. And so, true to the tradition of Shintoism, it is a study of something that is uniquely and authentically Japanese. And I think there's so much to learn just in this single art form that it becomes kind of an encompassing engagement. What's the uh, name of the film that you're that you guys put out? Yeah, our, we did the film Kaiju Bunraku, which has um, recently earned mention in Cine Europa as one of the top films of 2017. I think they intended short films. Congratulations! Yeah, we were very excited. A lot of positive feedback, and it's been it's showing tonight in uh, I think it's in Athens. Awesome. Um, but North Carolina and Ohio, all across the United States, Scotland really loved us. We were in Brussels a few weeks ago, and so we opened at Sundance. Any uh, future projects with Bunraku or anything else that uh, you care to share? Well, I've spent the last month training new puppeteers, and we've been meeting regularly and working through the kind of our flagship uh, presentation which is called Samba Soul and with that it is a celebration associated with Hachiman Sama and it's simply a it's a good fortune sort of celebration ideally with a symbolic meaning associated with Buddhism but the protection of the audience protection from harm protection from evil kind of a way to make sure things go smoothly in the future well, Eric, I am grateful to you for being a return guest on the show and come in and talk about some of the basics of Shintoism. I especially love the description today of how to navigate a shrine. I think that that's a really cool um, little piece of information for listeners out there. So thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas again. I appreciate you having me back. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is performed and composed by Derek Striving. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you would like to support this show, please subscribe or leave a rating in iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.